Welcome to the Writing Western Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we have a conversation with Professor David A. Chang about his book, The World and All Things Upon It, Native Hawaiian Geographies of Exploration. Thanks for joining us. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, and literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. So far in this podcast, our explorations of the North American West have remained in the lower 48 states. But I've been wanting to push the boundaries of where we explore Western stories, further west and into the Pacific. David A. Chang is a distinguished McKnight Professor of History and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. His 2016 book, The World and All Things Upon It, Native Hawaiian Geographies of Exploration, will be our text today. Published by the University of Minnesota Press, it won the Albert J. Beveridge Award for the best book in English on the history of the United States, Latin America, or Canada from the American Historical Association the John C. Ewers Award for Best Book in North American Indian Ethnohistory from the Western History Association, the Best Subsequent Book in Native American and Indigenous Studies from the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, and was a finalist for the John Hope Franklin Award for Most Outstanding Book in American Studies from the American Studies Association. The World and All Things Upon It opens with the centuries-long Native Hawaiian traditions of exploration, sea voyage, and active, positive engagement with the outside world. Their so-called discovery by Captain James Cook in 1778 was not Hawaiians' first interaction with outsiders, and Professor Cheng details how subsequent Hawaiian interactions with the broader world were continuations of past traditions. Through exploration, adoption of new religion, teaching of Hawaii's place in global geographies, interactions with American Indians and African Americans, and other topics, Cheng traces a steady theme of active Native Hawaiian engagement with the world. From the late 18th century onward, they were not passively observing their evolving place in the world, but were carefully mapping their own literal and conceptual geographies upon it. Chang's approach is instructive and provides a model for others to flip familiar narratives and historical interactions on their heads, to reinterrogate them and enrich them by privileging indigenous perspectives and utilizing native language sources. Chang's model encourages us to pursue the new kinds of questions these approaches will inspire, even if their answers are unclear. Professor David Chang, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. It is really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I want to start talking a little bit about you. Um, You're of Hawaiian descent, but uh, you explain in your introduction that you don't consider yourself to be a regular Kanaka Maoli or or Hawaiian native, or you're, you're a unique kind of Hawaiian native. Can you Kind of explain this to us. 
Well, it's a positionality that's not at all unique to me that I think. Um, but I was born and raised in Wisconsin. And so I decided that, yes, I, I mean, it was a way of explaining that I am native, but I also approach um, these things from outside, from an outside perspective. And it's being realistic about my perspective vis-a-vis these things because I didn't I wasn't raised in Hawaii I was not raised in contact with many native Hawaiian people except for occasional family kind of contacts and that sort of a thing visits and that sort of a thing so I thought it was important to situate my position um in regards to this work um because you you invented a new term for yourself yeah malihini maoli um because maoli is what we say for for um for indigenous or native or, or real um and it can be an adjective it can be a noun but you know um and so that would be in in this context like a native person but a malihini is a stranger and so a native stranger I, a native stranger so by pairing those terms together it was a way of saying yes i'm native but i'm also a stranger to this and so it's about my perspective it's also to recognize the limits of any kind of internal perspective that i offer to be to be honest about that from the from the start I think I, I mentioned this over email, but this conversation may be more about some of your approach and methodology than drilling down deep into the nitty-gritty of the content of the entire book. But I was really struck kind of by the way you approached this project. You know, I'm um, I'm a white guy, um, but I've written about Native topics, but I've always been really explicit in when I do talks and speaking that, you know, I, I don't speak for the, the people I'm writing for. It's not my community. Mm-hmm. And you find yourself kind of in this interesting middle ground. And I, it was very kind of – it was very open and sincere – um, way that you approached it. Thanks for saying that, Brendan. I um, mean, even, but none of us can speak for the community because, I mean, if there's one thing that so many great works in Native studies have shown, as you know, is how diverse, how yeah. internally, not not divided in a negative sense, but how very diverse Indigenous communities are. Um, and so th- that trap of trying to speak for the community is, it's a responsibility that nobody should actually have to bear you know, in the writing of, 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 of indigenous studies. You open your book with a really provocative question, which I wanted to read. And I like that actually a lot of this book reads as kind of an extended thought piece where you present narratives and histories, and then you you throw out questions. I think there's more question marks in this book than any other <laughs> book I, academic book I've read. It. And you throw out questions and you provide some possibilities, but you leave so many things open-ended, which I found very, very refreshing. But here's how you open. You say, what if we were to understand indigenous peoples as the active agents of global exploration rather than the passive objects of that exploration? I wanted to spend a little time on this idea because it's a lot of what your book does. It's taking this familiar relationship of native, non-native exchange, European exploration, colonialism, and in many ways you're flipping it on its head. What do you think, just, just simply asking this question at the onset, what do you think that does for us? It points out some of the stakes of the book, and it disturbs us from our kind of placid uh, assumptions as we enter a book to, to ask that question. I mean, I came at the question honestly by reading in the 19th century sources and being fascinated that time after time there's this very close description of different places and different peoples, etc., that's appearing. And I said, oh, my God. Why wouldn't there be right there? These people are desiring to know this faraway places, desiring to know about them. And I said, well, 
that's exploration. You know, that's 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 the process of discovering a world. The desire to learn and to know these new things cannot be limited to the European or the Western imagination or the intellect. The desire to learn and know and think about the world, to think about and then to think about one's place in it and how one can affect one's place in it needs to be universal. And particularly for Native Hawaiian people or for other indigenous people are entering into a newly expanded geographically um, kind of relationship with outsiders. That's an imperative. I didn't know, I didn't, I, I wasn't conscious of that imperative until I started reading 19th century Hawaiian sources. And then it was just so clear to me that there was this desire to know what is out there, who is out there, how do we fit into this, and how can we make ourselves have a good place in this, in this broader world. So how did you come to be reading 19th century Hawaiian sources? What, what brought you to, to that endeavor and kind of this book project overall? Okay. So one doesn't just I, casually pick up Hawaiian, you know, 19th century Hawaiian newspapers. No, you don't. Unless you're a unless you're a native Hawaiian historian in the early 21st century and you've already published your first book and you've always wanted to do Hawaiian history or Hawaiian studies but you've never known your way in. And unless there's been a generation of work that you've just started to read, work that stretches from the Dikakamete Hiva's work um, through John Osorio's work and then up to Noinoi Silva's work. And then yeah. if you discover that these scholars also had to learn Hawaiian and they did and they brought that skill to reimagining, not reimagining, but rediscovering the history of Hawaii and then presenting it in a way. And then if you say to yourself, well, if they did that with applied effort, I can maybe make some humble contribution too. Though again, realizing that I have I was born and raised um so far away from home that this is going to be a different experience for me. I didn't realize that some so some of those other you know well known Hawaiian historians were not fluent Hawaiian speakers. I don't know for sure, but I do not think that they were probably raised in the Hawaiian language because the generations of which they were a part were not by and large, raised in the Hawaiian language. They are fluent Hawaiian speakers. Don't get me wrong. But that's a skill that depends on study and on research and on practice and, and, um, and, and celebrating that skill and that work as an indigenous accomplishment and in no way invalidating, if you will, the quote unquote authenticity of the authors is important to me. And by discovering that this was the case, for example, for Noinoi Silva, whose work is enormously great, yeah. fine, I was like, I will never have her level of knowledge of the language or of the history. However, it does say that I can learn. And so then I delved into the study of the language and I delved being a historian into the sources and my initial project was not this project. My initial project as a U.S history trained historian was to say how were 19th century hawaiians into the early 20th century writing history how was the narration of the past changing and how were they taking on new ways of talking about the past and some of that's here so kind of a historiography project in a way exactly it was a historiography it was hawaiian historiography that i was going to do but in reading that, I found that his, history always involved geographical description. 
to to in a very strong dose of his geographical description and that was where things clicked for me it's like well to tell a place you've got to describe the place you've got to know the place and it's not only knowing it is far off but thinking about your relationship to it hmm. so thinking about this as a global process and you're involved in the globe did you find that that approach was inverse somewhat of being geography first imbued with history rather than history imbued with geography it might be inverse, but it's not. It didn't occur to me that way because I came to it as an historian, right? Uh -huh. And so I came to it as a person who's used to narrative of the past. And there's very, very rich and deep genres of Hawaiian narrative of the past, but they're very place-based. They often start from places and they describe places. So as I thought about historian Hawaiian historiography, it brought me closer to talking about geography. You had a unique opportunity in that you had this very unique, rich archive, I guess, of Hawaiian language documentation stretching back into the early 19th century, even, which is really unique for someone engaging in indigenous history. Because you've done previous work with indigenous peoples in Oklahoma yeah. and elsewhere. So how did that impact this project differently? It was profoundly important in that that large archive and also strong pedagogical resources in order to be able to t to learn Hawaiian. Right. Mm, and then yeah. role models of people who had learned Hawaiian. All of this came together to make it possible for me to get access to. I mean, this book and contemporary Hawaiian scholarship depends on tens of thousands of documents, hundreds of thousands of of articles and stories and newspapers and letters and poems and songs in Hawaiian, which are available to us in print. And that's because the Lahui Hawaii, the Hawaiian people and nation took up um, written language rapidly in the 1820s and the 1830s to the extent that it is commonly said and probably true that they were the most wild, widely literate they had the highest adult literacy rate of any nation in the world by by the kind of the early by the kind of the middle of the 19th century, um, because there was this incredible impulse towards reading and also writing. So doing that was amazing. And it was very different from other work that I've done. Now, I did do a little Muskogee um, language in my previous work, but not as much as I should have. Um we should all do more language work yeah. about the peoples and the places we study. Um, but in this time, I was closer to getting it right. And I was able to delve into newspapers, to letters, to textbooks, to memoirs and so on, both in manuscript and in print form that allowed a much richer engagement with um, – with what different Native Hawaiians were saying about different things. Not the Native Hawaiian voice, but the multiple Native Hawaiian yeah. voices. Because that's a diverse range of the types of documents you had access oh, yeah. to. You know, There are other written indigenous languages where we have a few documents, but it may be only journals or only newspapers or you know, very limited in, kind of the, in the scope. What you're saying is true about Native American language archives. Um, they're not as large, and they may have a narrower... Um, kind of range, but they're larger, but I'm still very much involved in Native American his history and historiography. They are much larger and much deeper 
than we've often recognized. And there's a lot of work that's going on now. I'm talking about sources, um, methods, methodologies, and materials in uh, Native American studies and indigenous studies that points to the wider range of sources than we than, than historians have usually accepted. Hmm. And those yeah. should really transform you know, the histories that that are being told. I mean, I'm I'm fluent in Romanian, which is not the most useful language. But through that experience, I I really came to understand that you don't you cannot understand a people, their worldview, how they perceive themselves and others, uh, if you don't know the language, because so much of it's embedded in the language. Right. And right. Time and time again in your work, you you reveal not just I mean you you reveal some actual factual things that maybe we didn't know. You know you you talk about this one English ship captain and Katyana, a Hawaiian man, and because of the language, you were able to reveal that they pro- probably had a homosexual relationship. That's a fact that came out of uh, using Hawaiian language. But how are the what kind of broader perspectives and, and conceptual things that you pulled out of using Hawaiian language sources? Well, perspective is, you know, absolutely to the point, because first of all, the Hawaiian language, as they emphasize in certain passages, is profoundly perspectival in its description of the world, um, in that the directions north, south, east and west are not really described from poles, but rather described from the perspective of the sun. You know, the, 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 the sun rises in Kahikina, which means the arriving, and it sets in Kekomohana the entering hmm. and north is described as the right and south is described as the left because that would be the perspective of the sun but ah. similarly in speaking right so 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 description so so that it inherently makes this a perspective as perspectival rather than entirely abstract um based uh means of describing direction um it's not based on cardinal poles but rather on the perspective of of one heavenly object. And you explained Kala, that you explained sun. that those kinds of positional things or perspectival things are embedded throughout the language. Throughout the language. We use we, we use something that are linguists call directionals mm-hmm. a lot in Hawaiian. Um, so one speaks forth or one listens hence or one goes away or comes forward. Instead of just going or coming, we heleaku, we hele mai. It's the same verb, it's the same hele. But the yaku means that it's going away from the direction of the speaker. And the mai means that it's coming towards the direction of the speaker. Similarly, in describing things, there, there's a constant. These things are not impossible in English, right? But, or in other languages. But, but it's it, just, it's not how we speak, a, though. Exactly. There's a strong propensity to describe things relationally to one another and especially perspectively. And that's important to me for a number of reasons, because one thing is it speaks to why Hawaiians. Because it's not only that Hawaiians were interested in the outside world, um, but also the confidence with which they approach the outside world, which just blows me away the sailing away on sailing on, on sailing vessels either to just if one had the opportunity like Katiana did to to go along um to sea or for many more people to go as laborers like the woman i describe as mm-hmm. kawahine um in that same chapter or to um start to learn foreign languages or to encounter foreign religions and to look at them from one's own perspective 
and to stand comfortably on one's own feet, right? Um, and yet encounter the world not as something that is an attack in any way, but as something that one wants to see. So that perspectivalism centers the person, centers the observer. So it has, so it speaks first to that, but it also speaks also to contemporary, really excellent contemporary work in critical geography, which is very critical of Western geographical description, um, which sees the world from an abstract place outside. When one thinks of the classic cartography of the European tradition, it's the view, it's God's eye view. It's not a bird's eye view, it's a God's eye view. Yeah. And the observer disappears. But the fact is, the world cannot be known except from a point of observation. So if you make the observer disappear, there's, there's the, there's what you occult the power of the observer, right? And so this is the temptation of kind of scientific Western thought that can lead us in some dangerous points of view which start us to start thinking about objectivity in a way that's really foreign to what we actually do. Well, let's talk about uh, let's get into some Hawaiian exploration then and and how they sure. kind of how we kind of they were with confidence sallying forth in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you explained that I mean Hawaiians uh, arrived on the Hawaiian Islands uh, around 300 um CE and you say that they had kept active communication and ties with uh, other islands up until about 1400, and then there's there's a few hundred year gap where they they don't explore quite as much. But this is important context then for the arrival of Europeans and native Hawaiians kind of re- return to old traditions of of going out and and exploring and engaging. Right. This is why I emphasize that that engagement with the outside world is a continuity, not a rupture. It's a return. To, and it's not only a Hawaiian tradition. It's a very old um, oceanic tradition. Um, and, you know, because the Hawaiians are part of a larger category that we often refer to as Polynesian, which is part of a larger category that ultimately leads towards, you know, a, a very um, kind of a large oceanic tradition. And so to arrive in Hawaii was an act of Extreme exploration. Yes, coming mostly from uh, what we call the Marquesas and Tahiti today. But arriving at the Marquesas and Tahiti depended on acts of exploration coming from other islands, coming from other islands, coming from other islands in a very long process. It's depended – we've spent a lot of time, our anthropologists, historians, in talking about watercraft, in talking about canoe crops. But also we need to think about this as as – uh, as something that one can imagine oneself doing, you know, getting on a boat and going to another place. It's one's not entirely sure is there, yeah. is heard is there, and then being just having it and being taught the route and making that happen. That's quite remarkable. So it's important for that to talk about the continuity of exploration and and how that helps to explain the way Kanaka Maoli in the 19th century, in the late 18th century, also just kind of. Just, just exploded physically. If they could go physically around the world, they did. And if they couldn't physically go intellectually and they read, they read, they spoke to people, they encountered the foreigners who were flocking to Hawaii, right? The, the other reason that it's important to talk about that is that Europeans from Cook forward and then Americans after them always talked about Hawaiians as having been so unbelievably isolated, implying that they had no notion that there was an outside world at all. And this <laughs> is simply false because yeah. 
in the melee, in the mo'olelo, um, there's simply knowledge of other places. Um, and it, and, and it's, and those traditions are full of the, the, the knowledge of other places, even if people weren't in current contact with them in say the year 1700 CE. If that's kind of the paradox of island nations, isn't it? And on the one hand, they are entirely isolated, but I guess it depends on how they view the oceans. Are the oceans a barrier that keeps them isolated? Perhaps in a good way, right? Perhaps it keeps them safe from the outside world. Or are the oceans great highways that connect them with the rest of the world? Um, absolutely. So it can kind of well, go either way. I agree. Uh, absolutely. And island and isolated are, of course, etymologically related in the Latin, right? Yeah. And very likely, I would guess, in Romanian, you can see that as well. But yep. um, yeah. but uh, but but the latter, the 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 ocean as 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 something that links, first of all, is a space in and of its own right. Okay, um, the ocean is a place. Kamawana is not a void, but it's a place. But it's also a place that connects rather than isolates. Is is fundamental to understanding the worldview of the oceanic kind of peoples of the Pacific. Hmm. I want to go back to what you said a minute ago, which really strikes me. This is a, you know, a Western podcast. And when we think about Western history and Western exploration or Western migrations, it's land-based, I mean, perhaps by, by rivers at times, but still it's, it's within the continent. And one can imagine someone with a, a moderate level of adventure just wandering off and going someplace new. And it's not that remarkable. Maybe there's big mountains to cross or things, but exploring across the Pacific is not something one does casually or, um, you know, accidentally ends up in Hawaii. So they're, they're, yeah, they're building on a long tradition, not just of exploration, but of real extreme endeavor that took skill, but also took just tremendous confidence. Tremendous. I, I like, yeah, I think confidence is important to see here. Um, the confidence is born from experience. You know, it wasn't, we're not talking, it's not just mere foolhardy confidence, but, you know, uh, because not everybody's going to get on. Not they everybody they wouldn't have made it if it was foolhardy confidence, right? Exactly. Well, and maybe maybe many didn't make it. <laughs> yeah, one presumes that that's probably the case. Um, but here's the ambiguity of the term Western, as you're using it and I've been using it, as I've been talking about Western in, in terms of the Western tradition, right? So, yeah, I've, I've been using like American West, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, to, to me, it's very important to situate the American West within the broader context of Western imperialism and colonialism. So I would place the American West as an episode within that broader history of the West of settler colonialism and expansion. And if you look at that, that's very much an oceanic process as well. Um, and so the, and also, frankly, it took a long time before people started, before white people started to cross the continent on foot, um, or, or, or with, you know, prairie schooners and all of these things. A lot of people were trying to get to the California gold from the East Coast. Remember, they went all the way down. They sailed around. Yeah. They went all the way around South America. So that was an oceanic process as well. Um, so isolating the West and that episode outside the, the, the what we call the Western part of the North American continent to isolate that story from the broader history of Western colonialism and imperialism would be to miss the ocean would help us to miss the oceanic elements, which made the terrestrial elements possible. And also we, we then miss the connection with uh, the Pacific world. 
Absolutely. Um, which, you know, I've taught various seminars and courses on the West and Native peoples, and, and I regularly have included a book, uh, like No Noe Silva, one of her books, or something on Hawaii, to get students to kind of, next, I mean, that's why I'm having you on the podcast, right, to kind of expand familiar ideas about, you know, the North American West, and let, let's push them out into the ocean and, and see that things are, there's, you know, similar things going on. Um, it, it's it's a, a continuation. Yes and no. I mean, it, it, and so uh, this is something that takes me, wow, all the way back to grad school in my Western history seminar with Will, William Cronin, right? uh-huh. which was 20 years ago now. And we're talking about Hawaii and the West is, on the one hand, you could say it's a continuation from the point of view of U.S. American expansion, yeah. expansion. But that only looks at the history of the Pacific from one point of view, right? Huh. So that's the western shore of North America, whereas the Pacific is also exploring, experiencing its own internal dynamics, right? And it's also experiencing these pushes from Asia, right? And these contacts with Latin America and directly with Europe and so on and so forth. So, yes, from the U.S. American point of view, but we don't always want to privilege that. We might want to decenter that. Um, if we're going to understand these places from, again, their own hmm. perspective. I mean, in, in the long run, we we come to know that that relationship with the United States becomes, you know, a real dominating force. But in those early 18th century time period, you know, the relationship coming from, I guess, coming from the East, coming from North America, maybe was was the aberration or and. The, the, the narrative of continuation or the narrative of continuity is from within the Pacific world. So, yeah, that, I hadn't thought of it that way. I've always approached it as a Western historian trying to extend things out to Hawaii to incorporate that into how we talk about the American West. But that that privileges the perspective of coming from the American West. Right. Right. Which was so maybe not sure. the most important relationship at the time. Or at the time, or else there's a teleology to it is the yeah. problem, right? Okay. It's reverse teleology, right? Like we're right. we're reading backwards onto the past what we know the, the eventual outcomes are going to be. Right. And that has really perverted our understanding of Native Hawaiian history, but also the history of a lot of places. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so we just kind of describe places if they're just sitting around waiting for um, not only white people, but like white Americans to show up. Yeah, just waiting and to be discovered. Waiting to be discovered. And like, you know, the Russians don't really count. You know what I mean? We have to <laughs> yeah. really wait for the English speaking people. That's that's who's really going to count, you know, or, you know, the, the Spanish and then the Mexicans. That's just kind of this interregnum before the logical outcome, which is going to be the Anglo-American Empire. Right? Yeah, and then the um, problem is that we then sometimes in most American tellings and conceptions, that is when Hawaii begins to exist. Right. Right. But, but there's new there's two creation moments from the point of view of West of kind of American historiography for Hawaii. And those are one Cook arrives and then two, the missionaries get there. Right. And so that's how everything that's how almost all standard narratives of Hawaiian goes as, you know, Cook arrives 1778. Then 1820, 1821, missionaries come from New England. And then that begins the logical process that's going to lead to 1893 and 1898. Um and everything that happens in between times are things prepping the next stage leading up to American annexation. Inevitably, right? Inevitably. And, and that's the problem. It's, it's a huge problem, and it's, 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 it's a logical problem, it's an intellectual problem, and it's politically offensive. Yeah. Um, and, it's, um, and, it, and it's a problem 
that matters in Hawaii, but it's a problem that matters for many other people as well. Look at the way that the history of the Western United States is generally taught in classes. Basically, it's taught, it marches across the continent. You don't hear anything about anywhere, really, until, you know, whether it's Fremont or Narcissa Williams or, you know, somebody shows up, um, kind of representing the Western American. Now, people can say this is because of a lack of archives, right? And sometimes that's true. But the fact is, people on the plains have been doing amazing work with winter counts and oral narrative. People in California, look at what William Bauer has been able to do, right? Um, using oral histories and narratives and working, again, very notably, from place towards time, right? Um, and, and, and not and decentering, if you will, chronology and really centering place. Um, so there are ways around this, but the imperatives, but history has served to narrate over and over, even so much newer critical history to reinforce that the true chronology of space is the arrival of what would end up being these colonial powers, even if you think those colonial powers. Even if you're critical of them, it's been a very hard impulse for historians to fight. Yeah, we still. Pro I mean, I I think I've even mentioned this on a previous episode, but a few years ago at the Western History Association, I organized a roundtable and a panel, kind of as like a double header, that gathered a bunch of scholars that were doing indigenous and borderlands histories, but that were using um, indigenous defined landscapes and geographies and borders as their base map. Mm. over which indigenous peoples and Europeans and Americans operated, as opposed to the Euro-American map as the as what's on the ground. And we, we tried, you know, for a couple panels to kind of explore how does this, how does this decenter um, things? How does this uh, change narratives? And it, it, it had some interesting stuff, but it's, but it's very challenging to do. Very right. challenging to, to do that because so much of the archive and just everything's built on, on those models. So much of that archive, but there are other archives, which is yes. what so much of us in indigenous studies keep emphasizing is there are other archives, whether they be birch bark scrolls, whether there be stories around a, you know, yeah, from oral ancestors, oral yeah. traditions, whether they be cartographic traditions, whether they be songs, whether but it, but in Hawaii, we're blessed for a number of reasons. Um, well, cursed for a number of reasons as well. But the but the. But the sources are very deep, and it's not coincidental because the Native Hawaiian nation was able to establish itself as a nation state for decades and maintain sovereignty for over a century after European discovery. So that is – it's not only the literacy. It's also the survival for – longer than many other places of a politically sovereign entity, which made keeping the language, getting things written down, passing them on more possible. And that it's really important to note that when we look at Hawaii, it's often told as the story of failure, of loss, right? Which I, again, I, I, I see a lot of loss. I see a lot of tragedy. But we have to remember that what Hawaii did is extraordinary. Yeah. 1778 to 1893 maintain its sovereignty 
And that sovereignty made it possible to do a lot of things that we are engaged in today, right? And only a little bit of it is scholarship. A whole lot of it is language revitalization. It's, uh, it's cultural, um, it's tradition and innovation, and it's political action. I think it's remarkable that they not only had a century of sovereignty and not by closing the nation off, but while simultaneously being so actively engaged in the, with the outside world is is remarkable. It's remarkable, but there was always danger in those openings as well. You and, know what I mean? And we see where yeah. some where some of those things led. led. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I want to touch on a few of these. Y- you go through a number of moments in which the Hawaiian story really runs counter to some of our preconceived notions about indigenous interactions with European powers. And the first is that you have these this early story of um, Katiana, Kawahini, and a couple other Native Hawaiians who uh, get on English vessels in the 1780s and travel to Macau, uh, so you know, all, all the way over to almost the Chinese mainland. Well, it's a peninsula, so I guess. No, yeah, they're, on, they're on the mainland, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then all the way up to uh, the Pacific Northwest, Nootka Sound. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little, little bit about these stories and how this should reorient our view of kind of early uh, Hawaiian engagement with the world? And then also, I, I mean, we need to get then to what these people then bring back to Hawaii, what their experiences they bring back and how that kind of shapes the course of the years after. Those stories are unexpected to many of us, but they're not new. Just to be very clear, you know, my intellectual debts here, mm-hmm. um, the stories of of oceanic voyagers on the ships of Euro-Americans um, has been told by many and most fully by David Chappelle in his book, Double Ghosts. Um, and that work has um, often been, or some of that work has been about how Europeans and Americans have looked at these exotic foreigners, if you will, on their boats, right? From their point of view, exotic foreigners on their boats. But they've also made clear that Tahitians, Hawaiians, Samoans, and then, you know, coming from the continents as well, Native North Americans, Native South Americans traveled to Europe. Uh, We've got Cole Thrush's work uh, on Mm -hmm. indigenous London. Um, And so there's a lot of work on these things. The thing that I really wanted to emphasize is kind of, uh, first of all, I wanted to emphasize that there was this eagerness to get onto the boats to see what was out there, right? Um, Because the source that the mirrors source that talks about Katyana getting on the ship and going overseas, um, going to Nootka and, you know, up to Alaska, the Philippines, uh, China, etc. He talks about how throngs of Kanaka were trying to get on his boat and he chose only this one. So that's important, first of all, just to emphasize this, again, will, this volition to go. Um, Another thing is to think about how did it matter that they saw that? Because I, I realized very quickly as I was writing this that I could tell an extraordinary story of their travels. But um, but what did it matter? What did they kind of, if you will, bring home? Kawahine died. This is a, a young woman who traveled as a maidservant on a vessel. Um, she died. She caught one of the many diseases that killed many Kanaka because there were no immunities to them. And um, many people went aboard ships, presumably did die of these diseases. But she, but from her, we could see that she was bringing back 
some rich material culture that she had um, uh, acquired overseas and like bottles for perfume and hoop skirts and garments that was that that would have expressed a position in society and that you could give to people. Right. These were prestige goods. Right. And they're very gendered prestige goods in a way that makes a lot of sense because gender was important for organizing social organization. So one of the things that that told to me that she was bringing those things literally home before she passed away on ship near the Philippines was that she had come to understand how at least she she to understand how gender and prestige were operating through some of these goods among the foreigners that she was traveling among. So that shows the skills of social analysis, if you mm-hmm. will, um, and of how to imagine and how to make that interact with things that mattered back home with her, because these were going to be gifts for her parents and for kin and friends when she got back, how she was very quickly figuring these things out. Kayana similarly was acquiring prestige goods, um, clothing and display goods and and figuring out how and when to dress in certain ways, when to wear his chiefly Hawaiian clothes, when to wear his ahuula and his mahiole, um, even when he was in Macau, but also how to wear Western suits and how to describe them, how to speak English and these sorts of things. But he was also bringing back something very important. Kaiana was a young rising chief from Kauai. He traveled overseas. He'd had these experiences on the western coast of North America um, and uh, the southeastern coast of Asia and in the islands of Southeast Asia, the Philippines and um, at near Palau as well and so on. What he brought back were some goods, but more importantly, he brought back an understanding <laughs> of the geopolitical world of the Westerners and of Asia and a way of starting to situate Hawaii within them. So he brought back intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was important to him in his later career because he became one of the closest lieutenants to a chief named Kamehameha, um, who from Hawaii Island, who led to the unification of the islands, partly through strategy, strategic diplomacy, and, some, and partly through war um, under under one ruler for the first time, under one Mo'i for the first time. So together, those two stories and many other stories tell us that Hawaiians were learning about the outside world, thinking about how it would interact with their own world, using that knowledge to their own advantage. Katiana was a chief on the rise, and he used it to his own advantage in allying himself with another chief on the rise and the, in, in, in the unification of the Isles and the unparalleled power that that represented. Um, and that speaks to and it sets up a way of looking forward from the 1780s and 90s and the earliest years of the 1800s looks forward to the 19th and I would say the 20th century. Um, it describes in many ways, it sets up a pattern of seeking, learning, um, it, 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 and integrating knowledge of the outside world into Hawaiian processes for Hawaiian purposes. You do the, you explain this as well with the introduction of Christianity where you, you kind of flip the script of it being you know, Christian missionaries coming and arriving and dispensing, you know, knowledge and doctrine on the Hawaiian people, and you flip this and explain how uh, the, it was maybe more the Hawaiians going out to to gather knowledge. Uh, they they 
they visited in, in, with Tahiti, and it, it came from Tahiti first, but it was an act of Hawaiians going out and bringing it in. Right. Well, the New England missionaries would never have thought of going to what they called the Sandwich Islands if they weren't encountering what they called the Sandwich Islands youths, um, whose experiences in New England with kind of the, the, the this this what we, we we come to know as the Second Great Awakening of Evangelical Christianity. Um, kind of were an important spur to that religious movement and to the missionary enterprise. That's one direction. Other direction was reaching out towards and engaging with Tahitians who were bringing kind of their knowledge of Christianity as well. But this is one of those areas where it is very bittersweet. I mean, because there was or much more than bittersweet, frankly, it's, there was an impulse to know and to learn other sacred traditions. There was an impulse also towards the written knowledge that went with Christianity, mm-hmm. given its strong emphasis of, 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 of the missionaries on learning to read and write so that one could read scripture, which is basically why Protestant missionaries emphasized yeah. writing so much. Um, but of course, that opened the door to missionaries who ended up being profoundly disruptive um, in Hawaiian economy, politics, culture, and descendants of some of these missionaries who were absolutely crucial to building up the agro-industrial sugar complex, the overthrow of the kingdom, the building of what they called the Hawaii Republic, and then the annexation of the United States. So I want to emphasize without, without turning a blind eye mm-hmm. to some of these repercussions. There are lots of examples of Native peoples accepting Christianity to some degree and having some kind of syncretism where they they blend it with existing beliefs. But you you seem to hint that that Hawaiians were in a different way integrating Christianity with a clear knowledge of, or maybe even seeking for the political and economic uh, and other benefits that would come with it in in ways that struck me as somewhat different than other uh, other other histories I've read of, of Native Christianity. Well, again, first of all, here I'm standing on the shoulders of earlier amazing Kanaka scholars who've talked about how different chiefs saw advantages to to alliances or tolerating the activities of the missionaries. Right. So I just really want to emphasize that, you know, that kind of work, you know, one can really look at Kameda Hiva's work on that is very strong. Um, Silva's work as well. Um, Yes. So especially for chiefs, who were important to making this possible, right? Um, there were strategic, political, economic, and other advantages to allowing or even encouraging missionary activity within certain boundaries. Um, that story is less clear, if, and, and I think is really worth more investigation if we get away from the chiefs and sort of the Mecca Ainana. Makainana, the 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 commoners, mm-hmm. the the common people. Um, I'd like to know more about that. I think we need to to learn more about that. Um, and as for the issue of syncretism, that's an issue that deserves also a lot kind of closer analysis. Syncretism. There's also in addition to syncretism, there's if you will, simultaneous practices in uh-huh. many parts of the world. And Hawaii certainly was a place with, you know, simultaneous practices, people practicing Christianity, but also um, remaining connected to Alnakua, to, to familial um, spirits, to local spirits and and to the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, 
But the question of syncretism is a really interesting one that I'd like to to see more work on. Well, this brings up this great tension in the discussion of religion that you then explore later in uh, the written word and uh, geography education and curriculum in this right. uh, surprisingly uh, robust and national school system of uh, the curriculum, the materials, uh, the presentation often being at least the base materials being driven by these Protestant missions, which printed, you know, in Hawaii and various geography textbooks and things d- during the 19th century. And then this continual, I mean, the teachers teaching the curriculum were often Hawaiians. Um, Almost and, always. And, right. And some of the ones doing the translation work were Hawaiians. And they are constantly uh, re- resisting or uh, asserting Hawaiian ideas and identity. Kind of, I, I feel like a, a similar tension with the religion discussion. When I picked this up, I was not expecting to be reading about uh, education history uh, in Hawaii, and I never would have thought to look at geography textbooks uh, in the 19th century as a way to explore how Hawaiians were thinking about, uh, you know, about the world around them. But you use it to great effect. Oh, thanks a lot. I mean, well, first of all, I was, when I first found the geography textbooks, I was I was amazed myself, you know, but, but I was so excited and so delighted to to be able to, to to read them. To me, this emerged from first I found the textbooks and then I had to wonder how they were learned, how they were used. And then I had to go read what is actually a great historiography on Native Hawaiians and education. Um, and then I had to learn about um, the different tiers of schooling. And to think about these books and how they were. And then one of the things that quickly became clear that, you know, um, other scholars um, have, have, have written on, and I think here of Noelani Kudjirka Opua and her work on, on education, is it's really important to note that uh, to a certain extent, the missionaries had a very strong voice and directive effort in the educational system in the Hawaiian kingdom. But they certainly weren't alone. They certainly weren't unchallenged um, by Native Hawaiians. Um, and also the entire educational enterprise had to depend on Native Hawaiian teachers until late in the century um, because there were not other people who were going to teach. Because we're talking Hawaii is a large archipelago with many small places and therefore many, many schools. And so what you have is local school teachers. They're going to be Hawaiian people. They're going to be teaching in the Hawaiian language um, almost exclusively. And um, so then what you have are teachers who are, A, teaching in a school system which is partly speaking towards from missionary impulses, partly answering to Hawaiian political leaders who want an educational system, which is going to create an informed citizenry for a sovereign nation. Um, And then in the classroom, they're using pedagogical materials that are sometimes really problematic um, to teach their young people. So two things happened to me that were really helpful is one, as I was going through the newspapers, I found the report of an examining committee um, in the Honolulu schools, which were complaining that the teachers were not using the geography textbook properly, but were actually <laughs> just teaching the beginning and then skipping around and picking the parts that they wanted to use. And I was like, 
that's what I do with a bad textbook. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if I have a bad textbook, I'm not going to use the whole textbook. If something is racist, if something is wrong, if it's outdated, you know, any of those things, I'm just going to skip it. And I'm going to go to the parts that I want to use. That's what every good teacher I have ever had has done that, right? Um, and then, you know, it's up to the district to complain, but teachers do their best to serve their students. And in this case, Native Hawaiian teachers were doing their very best, not only as teachers, but as makua, as, 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 as Hawaiian adults to act as, in, to intervene between destructive messages and young people needing useful, positive knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, so that's really where I saw that process happening. And that's, of course, a process that's still going on in our schools today. Um, and so, so much of this was to make the past not so distant, right? And to be able to imagine and then, and then see documented that teachers were doing what any good teacher who cared about their students in such a colonial situation would do, right? Um, but it also helped to kind of think comparatively and look at other educational systems because I was remember, as I was reminded, like, so, it's very famously said that throughout French Africa, the textbook that they used in history um, during the French colonial period began with the sentence, nos ancêtres, les Gaulois, avaient les yeux bleus et les cheveux blonds. Our ancestors, the Gauls, had blue eyes and blonde hair. And it speaks to how a colonial educational system works to try to make people feel to try to teach them they are something that they are not and then make it impossible for them to be that thing, to be a French subject, right? But here's the thing about that system. That's the educational system from which all of the great African nationalists in French-speaking Africa graduated. Mm -hmm. And they were all great students, and they all got 20s on the tests, and it's good, French tests are 20 out of 20, right? So because, And they became great intellectuals. So it makes sense that even in the more colonial systems, people have other teachers. They have the teachers in the classroom who might be doing their very best if they can, right? Imagine a black French, a black African teacher trying to help the black African students. Imagine a native Hawaiian teacher trying to help a native Hawaiian student. But also they have other teachers as well. They have their parents, they have their grandparents, they have the elder elders in the community, um, and they are learning other lessons. So I wanted to situate that educational system within a broader, a broader kind of a politics. And how does geography play a unique role in this? Because they're not only learning geography, but I mean, coming, coming back again to these ideas of how Hawaiians were viewing themselves and the world around them and uh, their position in it. Why was geography so, so central? Because understanding your place in the world is important for shaping your place in the world. And Hawaiians needed to shape a place for themselves in a very broad world. The Hawaiian educational system placed a premium on geography from the very beginning. Very beginning. Um, so you see the school standards for the national school system or for, for, for particular schools. And it makes or for entry into kind of elite schools. And it's reading, writing, mathematics and geography. That's what they need to know. Now, that might have been under the influence of other school models. I'm not exactly sure. That's something that would be good for me to know. But it also did speak to the particular needs of people who had just, quote unquote, been discovered, right? Um, only two generations before. Uh, 
Um, and we're dealing with all these foreigners coming through their ports, going to other places far away, who were seeing them as a small place that was useful in a global order where they were building empires and, um, and, and, and massive capitalist enterprises. Right. So the the outside world was looking as, a, as a Hawaii as a place to get food and water and a little rest on the way someplace else. And so that consciousness of other places and other people using one's place, it, it, that was that was very strong. And so therefore, I think there was a real desire to understand what all these places were about. Mm-hmm. It also speaks to your ongoing theme of uh, Native Hawaiians not being not just being passively discovered and people walking across their lands and stopping in their ports, but then being actively engaged, right? Yeah. In, in in this outward kind of world worldview and wanting to be really engaged with it, and and hopefully then th- then directing it and shaping it. Very much so, and um and that is something you know. That is still an ongoing process. One of the things that's really is for Hawaiians to try to make clear that they are not spectators to their own history, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that is an ongoing process. So it's not merely up to the universities who want to put telescopes to the top of Mauna Kea to make these decisions. It's not merely up to the U.S. Military. It's not even merely up to capital, whether it comes from North America or Asia, to determine the future of Hawaii. What is up to Hawaii and to Native Hawaiian people um, to 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 understand what's going on and to shape it, um, and and to try and to shape it for their own benefit and the benefit of generations to come. So this is a story that works on a broad space geographically. Right. Because it's a book about geography and it's about the globe. But it's also really at a broad stage chronologically, because that thinking forward to coming generations was one that Kanaka Maoli were doing very consciously in the 19th century. And people today are looking back at that effort and are learning from it and are using it and trying to shape a Hawaii that will be a good place in the future for Hawaiian people. Do you see connections then now in the 20th and 21st century between these ongoing active efforts by Native Hawaiians and other indigenous peoples uh, in North America? Absolutely. I see very strong continuities between that. For one thing, I'm the chair of the American Indian Studies Department, and I am of Native Hawaiian ancestry. I'm Native Hawaiian. And I spend my time going to conferences and listening to papers Um it, so, so the intellectual world, it brings that broader indigenous world together. Um, but also in the political world, um, there's an enormous amount of learning going back and forth. Our language teachers who teach Dakota and Ojibwe have been to Hilo um, on the big island of Hawaii because that's where they have these incredible, they've done incredible work on language revitalization, pedagogy, immersion techniques, and so on and so forth. And similarly, we get Native Hawaiian scholars and teachers coming here and also people from in, from from across the world. Right. Everyone from um, everyone from from Asia to Latin America to the United States to Oceania, 
this conversation across space about learning uh, as indigenous people are learning from each other's experiences, connecting with one another is a process that's contemporary, but it's also it's got some deep roots. Mm-hmm. And 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 the when the final chapter of the world and all the things upon it, I, I, I really try to talk about how Native Hawaiians um wrestled with thought about their relationship to native american people what 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 native american meant and then what it meant in relationship to them yeah if they're apart or different but there's a a, i mean a key difference in that many native peoples in on the continent have treaty relationships with the u.s federal government whereas native hawaiians do not correct correct how does that complicate the similarities or differences or or collaborations ongoing with uh, in this broader indigenous world, I don't think that's really at the center um, because it's uh, of that relationship. I mean, first of all, the native, the Hawaiian kingdom had treaties with the United States government. Mm-hmm. To be clear, those treaties did exist. Native Hawaiians, as a people, do not have treaties per se with the United States government. Um, and there have been various different efforts using colonial processes, using initiatives that have come out of Washington at a kind of recognition that is based somewhat on tribal status, on recognition, on tribal recognition. Those have been resisted by Native Hawaiian people because of the limitations they face, that they place hmm. on, 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 on political action and on uh, the pursuit of sovereignty um, going forward. Um, so the relationships have not really centered on or been troubled by, I would say, that difference. Nobody says that Native, Native Hawaiians are not American Indian people. Um, they are also indigenous people of the United States, however, right? Um, so that within the broader context in indigenous history and indigenous studies, that difference is not one that makes it impossible to have fruitful conversations and collaboration. If anything, it helps us, again, remind us, as you said at the beginning, the, the diversity, not just in Native communities, but Indigenous peoples throughout the Americas and, and worldwide. And yeah. too often we use the term Native or Indigenous in much more monolithic terms than we should. And and we inappropriately you know, assign some, uh, some very broad strokes <laughs> and generalities to a diverse group of peoples. Right. Right, absolutely. We probably should have done this at the very beginning, but I want, uh, but the title of the book, The World and All Things Upon It, comes from one of these geography textbooks. Actually, it's a phrase in a couple of the geography textbooks from the 19th century. But I was kind of intrigued of, again, the world and all things upon it seems to me, and I don't know if you read it this way, but, and I don't know if in the, in the Hawaiian language if it has this implication, but when we're talking about, you know, terrestrial continental spaces, we don't, I don't describe where I live in Utah as being um, a place upon the world, but an island, I might describe that way, right? A kind of floating upon the seas or upon the world. Is that embedded in the Hawaiian language, this phrasing? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, so that title is a translation of a series of articles written by J.H. Kanipu'u, who was a Hawaiian intellectual and school teacher. And in Hawaiian, it is Kahunuane Ame Namea Paumaluna Iho, which I could have translated as the world and everything upon it, but all the things I thought sounded a little mm-hmm. bit better. Um, that sense of onness 
It's a good question. I would not dwell on the onness part of it. Um, <laughs> the certain, that, that kind of that surface part. I think one thing that's not visible in translation is the translation is kahunua ne, which is the world here. Well, you could even translate it as this world. Um, but again, that gets us back to that thing I was talking about perspectivalism, mm-hmm. um, because it speaks from a particular place. Kahunua ne suggests that I am on this world. And I speak to this about this world. Right. Yeah. Um, if I was talking about a, if I was talking about if I was writing from Mars, I could not call it. Kahunune. I would have to call it uh, something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so that really does get us to kind of into a Hawaiian sense of space. It's a, that series of documents is fascinating. And the genealogy even of the title is fascinating. The series of Documents was brought to my attention by Noenoe Silva um, in an email exchange, and I'm very grateful to her for that. Um, but it also it is the extension of an older um, textbook um, from the 30s it, it, or so. Right? Title, yeah. There was a, there was an older textbook, Kahunuene, the the world or this world, which is a translation of an English textbook, Our World, hmm. um, and. One of the things that's interesting is that was probably the worst, the most colonialist of the textbooks that the Hawaiian school system got. And it's not that much longer that Kane Pu'u puts out this series, which one can even see in some ways as a response. Mm-hmm. Because Kane Pu'u was a school teacher in Palolo and Waikiki in the, in the Hawaiian in the, in the school system. And I have always wondered whether he got this textbook from the school system he's like seriously i've got to use this thing <laughs> and then i uh, came up with a series of lectures his own. Yeah. and some thoughts and wrote his own and took their title and extended it and gave it a little more depth yeah um because what he does is he really involves and this is something that geography can do it's critical political economy from a point and a place of view that's what kanip does is he writes the space of Hawaii, and he relates it to what colonialism and capitalism is doing to Hawaii. Oh yeah, because he's he's putting out some warnings. We, we need to be worried about the United States. There's there's yeah, danger. What's going on? Yeah. And he's but he's placing that, and he's trying to explain it in terms of things that are actually very comfortable in a contemporary university geography department. Not only the physical geography of the Hawaiian Islands, but what is its economic geography? How is it related to control by particular groups over particular groups, by haole over kanaka, etc.? So um, uh, that's where that title comes from. And the things that are important about it are that particle ne, which really gives it a Hawaiian kind of um, uh, locality. Mm-hmm. Um, in, it, linguistically, it works to, to emphasize that, that Hawaiian spatial perception. And then the other thing is the way that it is a response, but an educated response. You know what I mean? A knowing response to a colonialist text. Well, David, this has been great, and I apologize. There are entire chapters and topics and so much more of the book that we didn't even touch on. But I appreciate you taking some time this morning uh, to talk with us and uh, and th- thank you for this wonderful work. Do you, do you, can you give us any preview of uh, new things that you're working on? 
Well, first, Brendan, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And if we didn't talk about everything, it's because my answers were so long about the <laughs> questions you did ask. Um, right now, I'm spending – I'm working on a couple different projects. One is a digital story map about those two Kanaka travelers in oh, the great, 1780s great. we talked about. Um, so hopefully that will be up online end of the summer, September, something oh, like that. Um, and then I'm doing – working on some Hawaiian writings from diaspora from the 19th century and situating them in relationship with, um, with native North American people and places. And I've got a couple other things, you know what I mean? I'm yep. cooking up various little projects, but thank <laughs> you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. All right. Well, have a good day, David. Thanks so much. Okay, Mahalo. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. I'm Brendan Rensink, and I serve here as the host, producer, and engineer, and pretty much everything else of the podcast. So if you have any praise or critique, I guess you can probably send it my way. I also serve here at the Rudd Center as the assistant director and as an assistant professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions, not just about the podcast, but about the Rudd Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description. If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.